the 19th of July last year, I did my first evening show here at 7pm on GB News. And I said then uh, that I felt even before the pandemic, the delivery of NHS services was beginning to worry people. No one dared say it. One of those unspoken things. Don't criticise the NHS, because if you do, somehow you're not on the side with the doctors and the nurses. But the pandemic has made the problems worse. And I think there's a day of reckoning coming. 6.1 million people now waiting for medical procedures, some of them quite serious. Other figures, perhaps even more shocking, the numbers of people who've been waiting for cancer treatment, often waiting indeed for months. And there's now a growing percentage of the population who've lost confidence in the ability of the NHS to deliver for them and their families what they've come to expect. Add to that a growing loss of confidence in our general practitioners. And this is terrible because GPs have been one of the most trusted members of our local communities. And yet, the lack of face-to-face -face consultations, only 60% of consultations now are actually face-to-face. -face. Again, something that is worrying people. Now, Sajid Javid, the Health Secretary, has a plan to solve all of this. And our taxes will be going up from the 1st of April to help pay for some of it. But when I look at his plan, what I see are a series of targets. Frankly, it could be a kiddie's wish list to Father Christmas. I've got the sense that we're so far behind after the pandemic that actually things are probably going to get worse before they get better. So the question tonight I want to debate with you, the audience and all of my guests is how do we fix the NHS? Please send me your ideas, Farage at GBNews. UK. And it really is a very, very fundamental, very important question. It may well dominate, actually. I mean, I know that there's much else going on in the world, but it may well dominate family dinner conversations for years to come. Well, joining me first to discuss this, Dr Parth Patel, Research Fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Path, you heard my introduction mm. there. You know, I'm not a doctor, uh, but I'm a taxpayer. Um, and I am somebody that's used both the NHS and I've used mm. private medicine too over the years. Mm. Um, I have to tell you right now, if I want a GP appointment, I'm probably, rather than tr queuing up mm. at home in Kent to maybe get an appointment at three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm probably going to pay a private GP in London. Mm. Uh, that's not a bad thing in one way if it takes the pressure off. But how serious is this crisis? Am I wrong? Am I over-exaggerating? Well, there's no two ways about this. The NHS is in a really challenging position. We're, we're in a serious point. And the easiest way to, to really think about this is the NHS is struggling to deliver on its core, its founding, its principal function, which is a healthcare service that provides care at the point of need for anyone who needs it. And we're in a position where that's, that's not the case. Sure, emergency services, if I have a heart attack, the NHS will treat me in pretty much a timely way. It's not perfect, it's worse than it's been before, but that will happen. But actually, if I've got cancer, as you alluded to, or yeah. actually if I've got a knee replacement, and my mum's two years waiting for a knee replacement, right? That, that's not quite timely care. So it's definitely in a position where the system is stressed and we need to work out, we need to navigate out of this. And you're right, it's going to be on everyone's tongue. Everyone's got a family member, yeah. a friend yeah. on a waiting list, if they're not on a waiting list already yeah. themselves. Um, and it's a conversation that will dominate politics and it will dominate society and it's something we need to work out. Maybe even worse than you said, actually, because even a heart attack 
now in many parts mm. of the country, you ring an ambulance yeah. and the waiting times are longer than they have ever been. In fact, in many cases, people even with suspected heart attacks being mm. told, well, is there someone that could drive you mm. to mm. the hospital? Our population has risen very, very rapidly since the year 2000. It was not something politicians had planned for, mm. but that's a separate policy issue that I'm not going to discuss yeah. right here. But our population is set to continue rising mm. and rising quite quickly. What do we put in place? I mean, I've seen what Sajid Javid has said. What do you make of his proposals? So his proposals, the, the ones that have come out recently about reducing the elective waiting list, that's hospital treatment waiting lists. And he's put forward some targets, as you alluded to, yep. and a couple of things that might help us get there. So the, the problem we have here is that the basic building blocks of health service, the NHS, just aren't good enough. You alluded to it earlier. The pandemic has precipitated this access problem. Yeah. But actually, its origins run much deeper. Compared to the size of our country, the UK, in the UK, we've got some of the lowest numbers of doctors and nurses, some of the lowest numbers of scanners, MRI scanners, CT scanners. And yet, our spending on mm. health... I mean, there was an argument pre-Tony Blair, I'm going back a long way, mm. but an argument pre-Tony Blair that we were spending much less on health than, say, uh, as a percentage of GDP, mm. than, say, our German neighbours, our French neighbours. And that was true, but mm. it isn't true anymore, is it? So if we're spending... If we're spending the mm. same amount of money mm. as France and Germany, pro rata, why are we getting worse delivery? What is going wrong? Yeah, so that's a relatively recent phenomenon. We have now slightly got up to that European average of the amount we spend mm. on healthcare. That is quite new. But we are now. So the case is... Well, why isn't it buying us the same as what it's buying yeah. the Germans? Yeah. Um, and that's partly a consequence of a decade of short-sighted policy. We focused quite a lot on how can we just about treat everyone who becomes ill and not really thought enough about how do we stop people becoming ill in the first place. Prevention is so much cheaper than cure, and it's something we've dithered around for way too long. And that's something we need to think about a bit more if we want a sustainable healthcare service that does provide care in a timely manner for anyone who needs it. At the moment, we seem to just keep throwing more and more money at the problem. Mm. And it is, actually. I mean, that's, you know, Boris Johnson's government saying one of the main reasons taxes are going up mm. on the 1st of April is to put more money into the health service. We're not getting... I just don't think we're getting bang for our buck. Mm. Now, I know there have been a series of NHS reforms that have taken place. Some in the, some in the health service say there's been too much reform, but surely it needs radical reform, doesn't it? That, well, the reform in the NHS is, is an old conversation. You could argue it's sort of interesting. And as soon as you say it, people scream, ah, you want to privatise it? Yeah. And actually, Labour did privatise about 5% of it in the yeah. early years the, of Blair's time. The privatisation debate is, is, is modelled. There's, there's a difference, and the, the, the hard truth is the NHS has been using the private sector capacity. It uses it today. It's used it for the past few years. Yeah. It's been using it for the and past what, decade. And what's wrong with that? Well... It's the symptom of a health system that isn't functioning right. Because ideally, if you're a publicly funded healthcare service, you should be able to provide those functions in themselves. So the fact that you're then outsourcing 
to a more expensive way of providing ah, care. So it's, an than, equal, it's an even worse value for money in your view? It is, so that's a fact, it is worse value for money. So it's a sign of a symptom under stress. And but it, it kind of goes back to those two points I made. One, the building blocks just aren't sufficient. We haven't got enough doctors, we haven't got enough nurses, but actually we haven't focused on preventing people getting ill in the first place. You alluded to ageing, actually, if the population <laughs> is getting older and the country will get older for at least the next decade. Mm. It's also a very unequal country. Both of those things lead to people becoming ill. Now, we can't stop the country ageing, but we mm. can help people age better age healthier. How big in Europe, I mean, you know, we know about drinking, we know about mm. drugs, we know about smoking and the risks associated. How big a problem is obesity? It's a big problem. It's probably, you'd find a lot of people say it's the number one public health challenge outside of the pandemic um, for this country and for lots of advanced democracies to be grappling with. It has all sorts of effects on society, but of course, making people more unwell, heart attacks, diabetes, strokes, all those things go up and we need to find a better solution to the, the huge obesity problem we have. That's all the way from, is there a McDonald's on the corner of the local school, to how do we help people make better choices? It's not easy, is it? It's not easy. And the waiting list of six million, how much higher can that go? It's hard, it's hard to say. There's a lot of scenarios planned, and Sajid Javid has plotted a couple of charts. They could go quite high. I expect that number will be higher before the next general election. Do you have confidence in Sajid Javid? He's only just started his job. So we'd have to see how he goes, um, but he will be judged on a lot of things, and one of <laughs> one of which is improving access to, to healthcare. Dr. Paul Patel, thank you for joining us here on GB News. Thanks for having me. Well, that was, uh, I have to say, challenging, uh, because you can see the problems. There isn't just one little problem here. There's a whole host of problems, and and, and I I'm not sure anyone's anywhere near dealing with it. Now, what is interesting is Path talked about inequality. And there's inequality when it comes to waiting lists. And it does seem that it's the north of England, indeed, in many cases, red wall seat areas that have got the big... You're nodding away here, that have got the biggest problem. And, you know, let's look at Sunderland. Sunderland have experienced the highest increase in waiting lists during the pandemic. There are currently 45,000 people on the waiting list for treatment for South Tyneside and Sunderland's NHS Trust. Well, our North East reporter, Rachel Sweeney, has been out to meet some of the affected. From April 2020 to July 2021, non-urgent waiting lists across England saw an average rise of 42%. Sunderland experienced the biggest increase of 92%, double the average. That's compared to South East London, which went up by 10%. One of the people affected was Bryn Jones. He's a retired police officer from Sunderland and he's now running a local gin business. Bryn has had problems with tumours in the past, so when he discovered lumps in his neck at the end of last year, there was concern. Bryn waited up to eight months for treatment. So the whole procedure, sort of consultancy with the doctor, then having the, the scans done to the operation, probably six, six or eight months. And I wasn't concerned. I just knew COVID was, was having a massive effect on, on the NHS waiting times. And of course, the, the lack of staff that they have. I mean, the staff are massively, massively under pressure. But what impact did that have on you having to wait? That's months, that's a long time. It, 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 I just expected that. Bryn is from a family of NHS workers. 20 of his relatives work for the service. Maybe I, I accept a little bit too much because I have 
that, that much family yet. I understand the pressures that the majority of staff are in. I've got general nurses, psychiatric nurses in the family. Um, and it, it, it is what it is. There's so much emphasis on teams of people pushing for, for deadlines and, and, and waiting times. And there's more people sort of looking, looking into the waiting times and, and the delays and things like that than there are people, practitioners, who, who, who are doing the job on the front line. The NHS Sunderland Clinical Commissioning Group and South Tyneside and Sunderland NHS Foundation Trust now say that since July 2021 have worked hard to reduce their waiting list. In a statement they said, in July 2021, more than 85% were treated within 18 weeks, which is well above the national average. It's hoped as we move forward, waiting times will reduce and we can return to at least the old normal. Rachel Sweeney, GB News. And it's the money. I keep talking about the money. Just throwing money at something and not getting bang for your buck doesn't seem to me to be the answer to all of this. I worry about waste. I worry about inefficiency. I can't believe we've spent £37 billion on test and trace. I just can't believe where some of this money goes. Well, joining me to discuss this is Christian Nemitz from the Institute of Economic Affairs, an organisation that looks very hard at money, how government spends money. Um, let me ask you something. Is it the IEA's view that the National Health Service is this sacrosanct organisation that is, as Nigel Lawson once called it, the nearest thing to a state religion, and we should keep the model more or less as it is? Well, the IEA has no corporate view, but I think on this one, uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, none of us thinks that, no. Um, I think we are the ones who question the national religion on this one, because there are better systems out there and somebody has to talk about those as well. Well, let's talk about those, because, you know, we're constantly, all through my life, we do health comparisons with France, health comparisons with Germany. Um, other countries are said to be better at preventative medicine than we are, but they have different economic models, don't they? Different funding models. They have, absolutely, yes. I mean, I've long been a fan of the, uh, the private insurance model in the Netherlands, for example. That's a system where the whole population, everyone has private insurance. Um, that doesn't mean that it's a pure market system. They still have a safety net. The government makes sure that everyone can afford private insurance mm. and to make sure that private health insurers cannot discriminate. But you otherwise get a market provision of healthcare. You get private hospitals, you get private health insurers. You can choose and you are the customer. And that does mean if you are not happy with what you're getting in one place from your healthcare provider, from your healthcare insurer with a particular model of provision, you can go somewhere else. Not as radical as that. It was interesting in the House of Commons a couple of weeks ago, Sir Edward Lee, a very senior backbench Conservative member of Parliament, got up and said something that I've been saying here since last July, since I've been covering this subject. Namely, why don't we give people tax relief if they're prepared to put money into private healthcare schemes, because that would at least, re at least relieve some of the burden of the National Health Service. I mean, that would make sense, wouldn't it? That would be a first step, yes. And that uh, exists already in some places. That is more or less the system in Australia. Um, they have a state-run health insurer, which yes. covers the entire yes. population. But they also have that system that you described, a selective tax relief if you get private insurance. And just over half of the population, I think, 
make use of that option. And that means, yes, they take some burden off the public system. Now, of course, you also have to have a separate recruitment system in the private sector, because if public and private systems are just competing for the same doctors, then it doesn't help. But if those uh, private healthcare providers have that independence and can have their own contracts, uh, then that can be a way of taking some of the pressure off the public system. Whatever the, any debate about any form of privatisation comes up in this country, I mean, people start screaming. Yep, in depth. I mean, screaming, uh -huh. as, as if you've, um, you're on the verge of committing some terrible, heinous crime. It was interesting, talking to my previous guest, and the point that he made, which perhaps doesn't help in terms of this debate, but the point that he made was that when the National Health Service outsources, whether it's cleaning contracts or hip replacements or whatever it may be, his point was whenever it does that, the bill's even more expensive. That is true in some cases, especially where you had private construction of hospitals and then leasing it back to the NHS. Mm. That kind of system, the so-called private finance initiative. Oh. But that is because in that case, it's not the consumer who's in charge. Uh, it would be a government entity awarding the contracts. And uh, as someone who believes in consumer choice in free markets, uh, I believe that the state is a bad entrepreneur, but I also believe that for the same reason, the state is bad at contracting. So it's not about just handing out contracts to private organizations. It's about putting the consumer in charge so that the consumer can decide, I don't like what I'm getting here, I'm going there instead. And you don't have that with, um, I mean, I didn't listen to the previous section, but I'm, I'm guessing that would be uh, what he was talking about, those sorts of arrangements. And the test and trace scheme that, that you mentioned, oh, that, that would be- uh, how, how we <laughs> All this money. Yeah, that would be a perfect example. And what's of the benefit being? That, that, that would be exactly that kind of arrangement where you have just a government entity giving out a contract to a private uh, provider. And of course, if you tell a private sector organization uh, you get lots of money, we, we're not going to monitor really what you do with it, then yes, someone is going to take advantage of that. But it would be the situation where you can choose and uh, you are the consumer, that's when you make so wise for choices. You, for you, you think the Dutch system's the best system, don't you? Yes. I mean, they have roughly the same level of spending that we have, but they get much better outcomes pretty much across the board. And for a taxpayer, is it insurance? See, we hear, ins we hear medical insurance. We think America. We think, ah! It's because, you know, American medicine costs a fortune, and that's yes. partly because of their legal system where people sue each other for $30 million or whatever it is. If I was a normal, ordinary taxpayer and we switched to the Dutch system, how much more would that cost me? On average, it would be about the same as now. Because, uh, I mean, total spending in the Netherlands is almost identical to British levels. Per capita spending. Yes. All right. I tell you what, Christian, you've got a very, very hard sell here. I know. I have Last... made many friends with this. It's tough. Last question. Does the NHS spend too much money on bureaucracy and middle managers and structure? It must do somewhere. I've never quite been able to work out where the money actually goes. But you can see that uh, in terms of overall spending, we are now slightly above average in the OECD in, uh, in Europe, um, spending slightly more than a lot of comparable countries. But we have fewer doctors, fewer hospital mm. beds, fewer mm. nurses. Mm. So mm. where does the money go? It must it's, go somewhere. It, but Well, mm. I know. Christian Niemitz from the IEA, thank you for joining me. Well, are you prepared at home to think about having a radically different system or 
would you say, no, we've had this since the late 1940s, we cannot fundamentally change it? Should we actually have a look? Should a big study be made, perhaps, of the Dutch system? Maybe of the Australian system? Is there anything wrong in thinking about doing things differently? Remember the question, how do we fix the NHS? Farage at gbnews.uk. So, how do we fix the NHS? And indeed, how much trouble is the NHS in? Or perhaps more importantly, how much trouble are the patients in? One of the things that's really got me down during the whole of this pandemic is this constant, we must protect the NHS. Well, ultimately, actually, folks, it needs to be the other way round. We'll talk about that um, over the rest of the programme. Some reaction from you so far. Pearl says, I would treat it like a business and get Alan Sugar to sort it all out. Well, it's not an uncommon view, the idea that a businesswoman or, or a businesswoman could come in and radically change it. Jack says, fairly small change, but I'd stop letting Scotland have free prescriptions and make them pay like the rest of us in the UK. Yes, they probably think if they, if they leave the UK, we'll go on paying for their health care. We won't be giving them all that money anymore. It won't happen. Denise says, get rid of 50% of the managers, stop all diversity and climate change rubbish and concentrate on the paying public and get the lists down. And Jamie says, the NHS needs to scale up the means of preventing and reducing the highest reasons for admission. Such measures would include making prescriptions free, like they are in Scotland, as well as adding homeopathic well, yeah, I know the homeopathics have got great support, but but we're not going to get all this for free, folks. It isn't going to happen. Adam says, replace with the system that France has. Interesting, isn't it? You, when you book a GP's appointment in France, you have to pay a deposit. If you don't turn up to a GP appointment, you lose that deposit. And Gary says, replace the system. Gary... I, I think you're probably right. We may well need to replace the system, but what with? And that's going to be a massive debate. At least I hope we're going to have a good, open, honest debate about that, rather than just putting our hands over our ears. Now, the pandemic has affected different groups in our communities in different ways. For the aged, this has been a pretty awful couple of years. Many alone, isolated inactive, becoming increasingly immobile. And Age UK have issued a report, and it is actually, when you read through it, a pretty depressing report in so many ways. 4.1 million people now saying they're feeling worse in lots of different ways than they were before the pandemic began. Um, and, and so the impact here is physical, the impact here is mental. One of the stories that I did cover, going back to late summer last year, or the number of dementia diagnoses that had simply been missed. And, and the argument was put, you can't diagnose dementia over a Zoom call. Well, Ruth Isden is the head of influencing at Age UK, and thank you for joining us on the programme. I've given this a fairly uh, depressing intro, but it's not a pretty picture, is it? 
No, I'm afraid not. The last couple of years have been really hard for a lot of older people. You know, not everybody by any stretch. Some people have, you know, weathered the storm pretty well, you know, as they have across all age groups in the population. But there is a, a significant group of older people who have, they've been, as you say, they've been at home, they've been isolated, they've been quite lonely in lots of cases. So we've seen people talking about the fact they're living in more pain than they used to that their health conditions are worse than they used to be, that they are finding it harder to remember things, that they feel more anxious, that they can't walk as far. Mm. I mean, you name it. And within that, there are some really, really, really quite serious stories as well. People who perhaps two or three years ago, they were going in the bus, getting on the bus, going to town, doing their own shopping. And now they're saying, well, <clears throat> do you know what? I can't get up the stairs in my own house. So for some people, it's been pretty catastrophic. Yeah, and interesting, one of the figures that has been floating around is despite the length of waiting lists and the problems that people have got, that up to 10 million people haven't actually been yeah. for checkups. And many of those are older members of our community not wanting to cause a fuss in times of crisis. So the situation may be worse than we even know. I think there's going to be quite a lot of unmet need. There's quite a lot of hidden need, I think, that's still out there to come forward. It's partly sometimes people didn't want to make a fuss. They were, too, you know, they didn't want to kind of bother hospitals when they thought that they were so busy. But also as well, it's really important to remember lots of people were very, very, have been very fearful for their own health. They've been very worried about catching COVID. And there was a real lack of confidence, you know, about going into settings, hospitals or GP practices um, or into care settings where they thought they might come into contact with the virus as well. So yeah. it's really a double whammy. And so people have seen their health conditions in some cases get worse or they've developed new conditions that they've been really worried about but haven't felt that it was the right time for them to seek help. Yeah. I'm sure that's a real issue. Now, you mentioned the care settings, and a couple of quite big points have come out of that. I mean, number one, it was outrageous that some NHS trusts release people from hospital, you know, back into care homes, carrying the COVID virus, which did lead to a lot of, a lot of premature deaths. A lot of people died in care homes a year or two earlier than they otherwise would have done. Well, we certainly saw, you know, as you know, a, a, a very tragic wave of deaths in mm. care homes, in, particularly in that first, you know, early period mm. of the pandemic when there was so little understood about the virus and there was so little testing available. I think it's, it's a really difficult conundrum because, of course, it's absolutely, it's not a good thing to keep people in hospital when they don't need to be there. <laughs> it's not the right place for them to be. And of course, at the time, huge numbers of hospitals were very, very fearful about the numbers of people coming in. They didn't want people to acquire the COVID in hospital either. And hospital acquired infections has, has been a, you know, a problem throughout. But absolutely, in the absence of testing, we can't be confident about what happened and how some of these infections and how these outbreaks were introduced well, into care I think homes. We've got, I think we've got a reasonable idea or a reasonable suspicion. Now, between 30 and 40,000 people that work in care homes have lost their jobs because they didn't want to have the double vaccination. Yet for the National Health Service, uh, despite the threats, it's been decided that's not the case. And the logic is that you can still catch and transmit COVID regardless whether you've had two jabs, three jabs or whatever it may be. Uh, this has put many homes in the care sector into a very difficult position. There were staff shortages before this number left. Is it time for a rethink on this? 
Well, I think there's a few things there. I think the first thing to say is, as you say, we've had huge problems in recruitment and retention across the care sector, mm. not just in care homes, but also for the people who come in to look after people in their own homes as well. That was a problem pre-pandemic because, frankly, the terms and conditions are very poor. The rates that are being paid by councils are very low. Mm. Um, so, and that translates through into, into the work for the workers themselves. That, has, that additional pressure then was added through the pandemic when, of course, lots of care workers did a heroic job, but it took a big toll on them personally. And a lot of people decided to step back from that work. And then, of course, subsequently, as you say, we had this question about um, vaccination. Now, of course, yeah. the government has stepped back from now. That now that is, that is the proposal on the table that okay. that wouldn't go ahead for staff in the NHS yes. and it wouldn't go ahead for staff working in the community. And so they're now looking at rowing that back okay. for staff in and care And would you homes. welcome that? Well, we've welcomed it the whole way through because what we've said from the very beginning Fair is... Enough. Absolutely. Vaccination is incredibly important. We think it's the right thing to do for anybody working in health and social care because it, it doesn't fully prevent transmitting the virus, but it does definitely have an important effect. But Maybe. was coercion ever the right tool to mm. use? We should mm. be persuading people. We should be talking to them about what they're worried about. We should be a lot more carrot and a lot less stick, frankly. And finally, Ruth, what is it you really want what you know? What do Age UK really want? Is it more money, or is it a rethink about how we provide healthcare and the value we get for it? I think there's a few things that we really need to look at, and I would say across health and social care as well, because that's a really important part of the picture for older people, yeah. and how health and social care work together is an incredibly important part of the picture. So looking at, so we absolutely need a very significant investment in social care because that's been very substantially neglected compared to other services. So we need to make sure the support's available to people when they are unwell, when they're in the community, when they need to be discharged from hospital. That's a big part of the picture. But then we also need to get those services working well across. So we need to make sure that older people who are living in their own homes, they're not very well, that they have that wraparound support so that they have the support from social care staff when they need it, but they also have the support and from so nursing, and so GPs and up. others. Exactly. I know it very often isn't. And, I, and it's not just enough to have those services in place. They need to be talking to each other. They need to be working together. So, yes, we need the staff. Yes, we need the investment. But we also need to think about yeah. how people are well, working together to do it. Another area in which a lot needs to be done. Ruth Isden from Age UK, thank you for coming in. Thank you. And joining me here on GB News. Well... A couple of what the Farage moments on this vital subject, and one of them I have to share with you is NHS bosses pay. Now, try this for size. There are 675 officials working at hospital trusts within the United Kingdom where people earn more than £150,000 a year. By the way, nearly all of these jobs are in administration. Some of them, in one case, um, no, not one case, four cases, there are people earning more than £300,000 a year, which is double what the Prime Minister earns. Now, you know, given that nurses are earning between thirty and 45000 um, I think many people would wonder why the NHS spends such huge amounts of money on middle managers. I'm sure some of them are really, really good. But I think it is a real question uh, and something that I think causes, amongst those working in the NHS, a fair degree of resentment. And on that line of where does our money go? Well, here's a real What the Farage moment.
The NHS are busy advertising at the moment. Yes, they are. If you're looking for a job at home, this could be really, really good news for you because they're advertising a whole series of net zero jobs. No, I'm actually not making this up because they want to make the NHS the most sustainable healthcare service in the world. And there are jobs advertised here for up to £75,000 a year. I think some sort of green cult has overtaken Whitehall and Westminster. We should not be spending public money in this way. One or two more reactions from you before we head to the break. Uh, Charlie says, charge people for missing GP appointments. I mentioned earlier, that is something the French do. When Lord Winston, Labour peer, mentioned this, there was uproar. You see, it's very difficult in this country to argue for any type of NHS reform without getting shouted down. Dean says, we need to make sure that every single hospital has their own person to source the equipment as opposed to one person for all the hospitals and let them have their own budgets. Kelly says, prioritise for those that pay into the system and increase staff's pay to get more staff willing to work. Well, staff pay was increased a few years ago, but I think the truth is it's lagged behind quite significantly. Well, in a moment, we'll be joined by a GP, and she's a GP with some pretty strong opinions. She's a GP with a very unusual career path to becoming a GP. Rini Hunderkamp will join me on Talking Pints in just a moment. It's Talking Pints. Now, behind me, you can see the Palace of Westminster. There are terraces and bars aplenty, but we're here in the studio in Westminster Tower. I'm joined by Dr Rennie Hunderkamp for Talking Pints. Welcome to the programme. Now, you've got a very interesting story as a doctor and a media medic. Uh, how you got there is fascinating. <laughs> And I know you've had some pretty strong views <clears throat> about the National Health Service, the way it's operated, yeah. particularly through the pandemic. But looking at your history, very interesting. I mean, you know, you don't come from the classical background of somebody who would become a GP no. and a media medic, East End girl, single parent family, and from what I can see, a school that didn't really encourage you. No. And I think actually it's all of that which has given me a different view on the NHS to maybe the doctors that have gone in at 21 straight from university. And so always seeing the NHS through NHS glasses where I've seen it from having lots of experience in business beforehand and always having to fight to get where I wanted to be. And so, yeah, I went to this sink school in East London where being bright and wanting to learn really wasn't you know, the done thing. And I was bullied mercilessly as a result. And I think that made me quite strong as well. I'm not saying that kids should be bullied, no. but you know, it certainly formed who I <laughs> certainly formed who I am. And um, I was always going to go to medical school because my mum, who was the driving force behind me, yep. always said, "You can do whatever you want. You know, work hard, get out of here." And that was always my plan. I did 11 O levels, I did four science A levels, and then I went a bit crazy, Nigel. To be honest, I. Woke up one day, was tired of learning, went to my careers teacher. They didn't want girls in medicine, and they really didn't. I had uh, well, to fight. So, just sort of pick that up for a second. Yeah. So you were actively dis dis discouraged yeah. as a woman from going into medicine. To do three science O-levels, which what you needed to do then to go to medical school, 
my mother had to go to the school and fight. And they said, well, how does she know she wants to be a doctor? Mm. You know, we don't have girls in science doing three. Mm. I did my, I didn't tell you this, I did my chemistry O-level at night school, age 14, because I was the only girl in the class. And my chemistry teacher said, oh, my God, we've got a girl in the class. And every time I asked a question, he threw me out. And I went home and said to my mum, I'm not going to pass chemistry if I stay in the class. So that was real prejudice. Yeah, really. The girls then at that point weren't doing sciences. So when I went to my careers teacher and said, mm. I can't do this, I don't want to be a doctor anymore, instead of saying go travelling for a year, which would have worked, I just needed to let off some steam. The gap year hadn't, the been, gap hadn't year. been invented no. then. No, <laughs> but I needed one and I really did. She said, oh, OK, why don't you go to Marks and Spencer's management? It's really hard to get in, but you might. And I did. And I hated every single second of it. You know, I really did. I hated it. But kind of given where you are now mm. as a doctor, mm. but very much, you know, a media medic. And, yes. you, uh, you know, you've done BBC programmes and you appear on all sorts of programmes and you write prolifically. But the next stage of your career really interests me because you finish up in the media. And, you know, you finish up having worked with, with, with Robert Maxwell's paper for a bit yes. um, and probably got out of there very well when you did. But you finish up working... Back in the media. ..with Richard Desmond. Yes. OK magazine. Who I know very well. <laughs> I know Richard very well. He was a big supporter of my political campaigns. Yes. Uh, a donor, um, Express newspapers, but, and someone I, whose company I enjoy. But... He's a difficult man to work for. My goodness me, I, I couldn't <laughs> say. I mean, I'm a friend that has a, you know, drink with him when we talk about the world. Uh, I guess to work for, very demanding. Awful at points, but if you could, <laughs> if you could actually work with him, you did very well. Um, and he was very good at just um, saying to you, if you came to him with an idea that wasn't in your area of expertise and he liked it, he, before he palmed it out to someone else, he would say, well, do you want to do it? So it was different to other media companies because I'd worked at the Express before that. And that was very, you stayed in your box and you did what you mm. had to do. Um, so, yeah, he was difficult and it was interesting. And I did everything there. I mean, I was the publisher of OK when I went in. I took over Chic and Attitude magazine. I used to go up to Sky, to his television channels and help train the salespeople. Whatever he wanted, I negotiated paper deals. You know, it was, a, it was an amazing experience. I married his right-hand man, Stan Myerson, who was another difficult man. He won't mind me saying that, we're still <laughs> friends. Um, so it was interesting, but I'd had this experience of difficult men long before that when I worked for Maxwell on the London Daily News. And when that closed, and I was 21 and, and thought I knew everything, um, he invited seven of us to a meeting with him where he wanted us to stay on at the Mirror. And he gave us his spiel and then he said, do you have any questions? And I actually was sitting at the left of him and he was huge. He was this massive man. And I said, yes, I have a question. Um, why did you close this paper when you said you would give it away free for two years? And he looked at me and he said, if, my dear, you knew as much about newspaper publishing as you think you do, you'd be sitting in my chair. Mm -hmm. no, there you are. So I left. Yeah. No, you were right to. But, I, but I know you've... I'm fa but but, but the, the, the OK stuff fascinates me. But then you decide to go back to where you started and you go off as a mature student. Yes. And become a doctor and you've moved on through that and I mean you know as I understand it you know skin and all sorts of things to do with skin is, is, is your speciality now? Well, no my 
my speciality is actually women's health. Okay. So women's health, menopause, I've been a big campaigner for. I did a documentary for BBC Inside yeah. Out on that. Um, I have a private aesthetics clinic that I work six hours a week in. And it's been an interesting experience because I work three days a week, four days, because I work in A&E as well, um, as I am this weekend. Um, you know, in all of this COVID stuff, where I have been very outspoken, other doctors have often worked so hard to shut me down, telling people that I'm not actually a GP that's practicing, that all I do is inject Botox into people's faces. I mean, the smear campaign has often been, you know, but massive. But you dared to challenge the yes. orthodoxy, and you're not supposed to do things like that. And you've done it particularly on vaccine mandates. Yes. Which is a battle we appear to have won. I say we because I, you know. Kind of. I don't think we have won it, Nigel, and I think you? that's the worry. So, yes, I think when he's done his consultation and they vote in the House, it probably will be voted down as a mandate. But he has actively encouraged all of the regulatory bodies, the, the NMC, the GMC, to make it a professional responsibility. So doctors and nurses are going to come to their appraisal and their appraiser is ah, going to say, so have, the, you, through the back door. have you had your vaccine? He's also told trusts that they can actually not employ people if they haven't had their vaccines. So doctors who move jobs every six months aren't going to be able to move jobs. They won't be able to train. Nurses won't be able to train. So I don't think that battle is over. OK, that's interesting. That's, no, that is uh, not completely surprising, but mm. interesting. But one thing, I mean, look, you know, I, I was for the lockdowns when they first happened. Yeah. It was something new. We didn't know. I, I had friends in Milan telling me the most alarming stories of yeah. what was going on there. Uh, I then very quickly got bored with the whole thing and thought we've got to get on with life and protect the vulnerable. But one thing we can say, and you've, you've campaigned more vocally and more publicly than I have on this, I might have been a bit later to the party on it, but you know, fair enough, we all make our minds up Absolutely. on things at, at different points in time. I was early on the Europe thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was with you. <laughs> very early. But the fact that all restrictions in England are ending, that we are the first country to really say we're going to get, going to get rid of all it's this amazing. stuff, actually shows you the power of a free press, which we still pretty much do. The, the, the complete censoring of these arguments has been online. Yes. Yeah. It's not been in print, you know. Um, and, to a degree. To a degree, and I think GB News has added... Yes. ..to that media plurality in, in, in terms of debate. Uh, and I've noticed things that we're doing, other broadcasters now beginning to do. I also think that enough sensible members of Parliament were prepared to rebel against yeah. the party line and their leader. So I actually think this is quite. This is a genuine victory. You know, yes. we're, you know, we're not going back into lockdowns. No, and I uh, don't think we ever can or ever will. No. And I think, I mean, you've just been talking to Age UK. For me, I think my first article about this was April 2020, when I sat in GP for a day and saw four different patients at different stages of their cancer diagnosis to treatment be cancelled. And I could see immediately the tragic effects that this was going to have if this continued for any time. And I wrote that first article in anger, actually, because I'd seen someone who'd had a curative lung cancer operation cancelled. Curative. So by the time she got to operations, she probably wouldn't be curative anymore. And to me, that was devastatingly tragic because I understood that COVID was killing people, but surely we couldn't just discard all of these other people. You know, 450 people a day die of cancer in this country. It's going to go up because of what we've done. 
Is there anything we can do to rectify this, to resolve this? We've got this massive waiting list. We've got these cancer pages. I mean, diabetes screening. Yeah. We've barely been bothering yeah. from, from what I can make out and talking to diabetes experts. What do we have to do? What needs to happen, not just with the backlog from the, from the pandemic, yeah. but, but the NHS, it's you know, broken. It, ha it has a problem, doesn't it? It's broken. It's not fit for purpose at the moment. And I think we do have to almost rebuild it from scratch. And the moment you say that, People start screaming, oh, she wants to privatise it, she wants to... I don't. I actually think if I was PM tomorrow, and obviously that's not going to happen, Nigel, um, I would say to people, look, you need to trust us. The NHS will always be free at the point of contact. That's the first thing. And we have to reassure people that that is the aim, not to privatise it, not to put it in other people's hands. And I think one of the massive problems in the NHS is the waste and the duplication. And much, as, much of that has come from splitting it up into a zillion di different pieces. Psychiatry, for example, that used to be one department, is now hundreds. So if you've got well, not hundreds, but it's lots, yeah. you know, if you've got... If you're on new diagnosis, you go into an assessment and brief team for six weeks. But if you need treatment for longer than that, you then go to a recovery team for six months. But if you need longer than that, you go to another team. Every one of those teams has its own back office, its own photocopy machines, its own contracts. So are we going to finish up? Are we going to finish up with an NHS in a country that's not prepared to have a proper debate about reform, where those without money get an increasingly bad service yes. and those with money opt out to one of the best. I mean, the private medical health care in London yep. is brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely. Are we going to finish up with this being another division in society? I think we are and I think we're already going there. We've seen over the last two years people so frustrated at their hip pain that's stopping them from working and getting on with life that they're scraping together the my money. Mother, my mother went and had a private knee operation. Yeah. I don't think she'd ever been outside the NHS. And she's, and she's you know, old enough to remember, of course, when it was yep. set up and in desperation and not wanting to wait for two years, she yeah. went and did that. And, yeah. It's tragic. It's worrying, isn't it? But lots and lots and lots of people... I mean, I sometimes speak to people on the phone, Nigel, and they need physio. And the wait list for physio is months and months and months. Mm. And I say to them, you know, if you've got about £50, you can probably have an initial physio appointment. They haven't. Mm. Some people haven't got £50. You know, that might sound really weird to no, lucky no, people no, like no, us, no, but it no, isn't. No, no, I, I know this is real. Rini Hundekamp, thank you for joining me here on Talking Pints. This is a conversation... Uh, well, your life's been fascinating, but the last <laughs> few minutes of it, uh, there are no easy conclusions or there answers really to any of this. It's going to be a real, real problem. And I guess all of you at home can see this is going to be one of the biggest societal issues for years and years to come. That's enough from me.